If the United States and the United Kingdom have violated international law in Iraq, including extensive breaches of the Geneva Conventions, why aren't the institutions of international governance, such as the United Nations, doing anything to hold those countries to account? Former UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq, Dennis Halliday, will provide his analysis of how Iraq marked an all-time low for the credibility of the international body and explains the changes needed to reverse the damage to its reputation. And what obligations does the Canadian government have with regard to protection of soldiers who refused service in Iraq in illegal war? Professor Francis Boyle will weigh in with some thoughts later in the hour. And what obligations does the government have to arrest former Vice President Cheney while he is in the country later this month? Gail Davidson of Lawyers Against the War makes the group's case against Cheney and Bush in the last half hour. On today's program, Iraq. No accountability in the UN or Canada. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 4th, 2013. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today. Thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Israel's African oil dreams gain muscle from the participation of heavyweights like Vital Energy Trading Company, which has signed aboard for the Juba Lamu Pipeline. Earning notoriety as the oil trader for rogue states, Vital took a lead role in the Iraq oil for food deal and defied UN sanctions against Serbian energy imports. More recently, during the Libya insurrection against the Gaddafi regime, Vital transported the first shipment of light crude out of the insurgent-controlled Tobruk aboard a tanker that somehow managed to pass through a NATO blockade. It also delivered $1 billion in gasoline and diesel for the rebel convoys during the assault on Tripoli. None of this daring do is remotely possible unless the company acted on orders from the CIA. That's from the article, Was it a PSYOP? Nairobi Mall Deceit Abets Israeli-Western Pipeline Wars to Oust Asian Rivals by Yoiki Shimatsu, posted October 1st. In an article published by the New York Times, President Putin opened fire. He stressed that, quote, American exceptionalism, unquote, is an insult to the equality of humans and can only lead to catastrophe. The president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, drew applause by demanding an apology from Washington for its universal espionage, while the president of the Swiss Confederation denounced the U.S. policy of force. The president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, evoked the trying of his U.S. counterpart under international justice for crimes against humanity, while the Serbian president, Tomislav Nikolic, denounced the masquerade of international courts 
which prosecute only the enemies of the empire, etc. Never before has the authority of the masters of the world been so publicly challenged, a sign that after their Syrian retreat, they are no longer to be feared. That is from the article, The United States Feared No More, by Thierry Maison, translated by Roger Lagasse, posted October 1st, and originally appearing on the Voltaire Network. The UN inspectors who monitor chemical weapons in Syria would have much to do if they were sent to monitor the Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Weapons, NBC, of Israel. According to various international reports, also quoted by the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, biological and chemical weapons are developed at the Institute for Biological Research, located in Nes Ziona, near Tel Aviv. It has also come out that toxic substances developed by the Institute have been used by the Mossad to assassinate Palestinian leaders. Medical evidence indicates that in Gaza and Lebanon, Israeli forces used weapons of a new design. They leave the body intact outside, but, upon penetration, devitalize tissues, carbonize liver and bones, and coagulate the blood. This is possible with nanotechnology, the science that casts microscopic structures by building them atom by atom. That is from the article, Israel's Secret Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Weapons, NBC, by Manlio Denucci, translated by Roger Lagasse, and posted October 1st, originally appearing in Italian at ilmanifesto.it. My son died. He died from an explosion. I can prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. One newspaper reporter from the Philadelphia area was very upfront with me. She said, quote, You know, Bob, as a reporter, I am the problem because we will lose our jobs. If I take that, just that little bit you just said to the editor, he will crush it. That is a quote from Bob McElvain, father of 9-11 victim Bobby McElvain, broadcast on RT's The Truth Seeker, 9-11 and Operation Gladio, posted October 2nd. For many years now, hundreds of Lithuanian guys have been signing up for peacekeeping operations and getting killed in hotspots like Iraq, Kosovo, and Afghanistan. At the present time, Americans are currently organizing the recruitment of mercenaries in Lithuania for dispatch to Syria. Private security companies in Lithuania are directly involved in the recruitment drive. These companies have already distinguished themselves in their selection of personnel to assist in the conduct of NATO military exercises in Lithuania, as well as in business dealings carried out by Americans in Afghanistan through Lithuania. American private security companies accustomed to carrying out the dirty work of security agencies both in hotspots and during terrorist attacks on American soil itself are also being used. That is from the article, Lithuanian Mercenaries Dispatched to Syria by Private Security Companies on Contract to NATO by Nikolai Malishevsky, posted October 1st, originally appearing on the Strategic Culture Foundation online journal. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
Many major war crimes have been associated with uh, the Iraq War, and yet there's a question as to whether or not the institutions like the United Nations and the World Health Organizations have been holding to account those who have perpetrated war crimes and are continuing to do so. Dennis Halliday has a lot to say on the subject. He is a former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations. Dennis Halliday resigned after 34 years with the United Nations in September 1998 following a stint as Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq. In 2003, he was presented with the Gandhi International Peace Award for his work bringing attention to the plight of Iraqis. Since leaving the UN, Mr. Halliday has been involved with a number of peace initiatives, such as Perdana, founded by the Malaysian ex-president Mahathir Mohamad. He's also an occasional contributor to Global Research. Dennis Halliday, uh, we're delighted to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Michael. It's, it's good to have uh, to talk to uh, Canadian uh, listeners. Okay. Now, uh, we, we've heard a lot about, uh, mostly from uh, you know, the United States presidents and uh, the UK prime minister, about how the United Nations' uh, credibility is in doubt. Uh, you, you've... Uh, question the credibility of the United Nations yourself, although I think you're coming from a very different perspective. Um, could you maybe uh, outline how you feel the United, the, the ways in which you have found the United Nations uh, uh, failing to uh, carry out its obligations uh, under uh, international law and international, uh, under its own mandate? Yes, it's a long story, but I'll be as quick as I can. I think we, first of all, we have to establish there are two United Nations. Uh, the United Nations of the Secretary General and his uh, Secretariat and people like myself who worked all around the world is one part of the equation, and that part of the United Nations takes instructions from the owners, the member states, the people who actually run and control the organization. Now, in the context of war, warfare in Iraq, we're talking about the Security Council. Now, the Security Council is not representative. It, it, the General Assembly has 195 members, I think it is. It's democratic and so on. Everybody's equal. But in the Security Council, thanks to people like Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt, they set up a controlling mandate known as the veto power, the five permanent members who control the Security Council and thereby control everything the United Nations does in the very important realm of peace and security. And it's this this corruption, in my view, of the Charter and of the intent and spirit of the United Nations by these five member states that have, has led to, to questions being raised as to the viability, the usefulness, and the effectiveness of the, of the United Nations itself. So we're talking about the intergovernmental organization, and in particular we're talking about the Security Council. And in the case of the Iraq War, when Mr. Bush, encouraged by Mr. Blair, uh, invaded Iraq in total violation of international law, both of the Charter, the Geneva Conventions, and every other international um, law that protects uh, the sovereignty and the innocence of, of countries. Um, that, unfortunately, was not stopped by the Security Council. They failed, of course, to endorse it initially, but they also failed to take action to uh, perhaps uh, in some way diminish the role of Britain and the United States in the UN or excommunicate them or whatever the word would be. There's no device for that, but there should be. Uh, so, in fact, Bush and Blair were allowed to invade Iraq and commit, as you, as you suggested, war crimes. And many of us believe they, in fact, uh, based on 13 years of shanks, sanctions, 
they also uh, in, in, in imposed genocide on the people and the children uh, of, of uh, Iraq. Do you want to talk briefly about those, because uh, you were humanitarian coordinator during that sanctions period, but before the... Um, the the uh, invasion in 2003. Uh, where, where had the, the as you see, are the main areas where the UN had failed the people of Iraq in that, in that respect? Well, you see, many of us believe there's a conti continuum of war from 1990, 1991, right through to the present day. And the first war was known as the Gulf War, which was um, derived to allow the Americans and half a million other troops of, under American command to drive Saddam Hussein's forces out of Kuwait. That was, the that was the beginning of the end, in a sense. And during that process, American bombing of uh, Iraq, uh, Iraq was in violation of international law in that they destroyed the um, infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, water, power, sewage systems. And that's a violation of law. They also committed appalling atrocities against Iraqi uh, troops and against civilians, and they introduced the use of depleted uranium which has left horrendous uh, consequences and children and people are dying today from DU exposure going back to 1991. Or since then, they're now dying of, of exposure to white phosphorus and DU uh, cluster munitions and other American devices since then. But that's, that's, that's I'm, I'm diverting myself. But the sanctions period was a punishment, a collective punishment of, of innocent people, uh, not decision makers, which is perhaps uh, the way it's attempted today. But uh, collective punishment is also a violation of the Geneva Conventions. But these were sustained by Britain and America in particular. But, it, but the, the Russians, the French, and the Chinese didn't stop it, as they might have done, using veto power. Uh, they let it slide. But I must say, when I was in Iraq and I worked both with the French, Russians, and Chinese, we were able to double the size of the program in our attempt to feed and, su and support uh, 25 million Iraqis. So it's, it's a long story. I don't think we need to go into that. But it was a beginning... Of a, of a long period of warfare mounted against Saddam Hussein because he offended, or he, became, he seemed dangerous, he upset Israel, he upset the Americans, um, blah, blah. And, 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 the, and it was a regime change from the very beginning. It took a long time for Bush Jr. to, to take the plunge, uh, commit atrocities, commit war crimes, and all the rest of it, uh, mm -hmm. to overthrow Saddam Hussein. So... Um we, we had the uh, arrival of the uh, the resolution <coughs> by the UN to uh, well th there was a resolution brought forward to the UN uh, that uh, calling for an intervention in Iraq which the United Nations Security Council uh, did not initially approve they did not give the go ahead for that and uh, you've spoken about this uh, I believe in a 2005 article as being uh, among the low points of the uh, UN do you want to explain that? Yes, the, uh, under the arrangements that exist, which of course should be changed and modernized, and the southern uh, part of the world, the, the, the Brazils, the South Africa's, the rest of us need to be represented here, but they're not, of course. But under the present arrangements, uh, uh, all of uh, France, Russia, and China, who were opposed to the invasion of Iraq, um, could have vetoed uh, the resolution, could have stopped the invasion by that means. The Americans might still have gone ahead, but there would have been a clear signal from the Security Council, from the United Nations, to the world, to world media, that the UN was opposed completely to the invasion of Iraq, which is a huge violation of sovereignty and everything else that's deemed important. But that was not done. So that was a, that was a huge failure on the part of the Security Council. Mm. 
and uh, following the, 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 the invasion t- took place and the UN, it seems, uh, retroactively, uh, or at least this is the, the sense that uh, the UN continued to be involved in the, the post-invasion uh, uh, activity within Iraq. So that, that in itself is uh, um, a violation of, of its own rules, is it not? Well, the UN um, had continued, had been involved in humanitarian assistance since 19, nearly, well, actually, to the mid, mid-90s. Yeah, so it never stopped, really. Yeah, but it was sanctions, and then uh, the, the world convinced, I think, uh, Washington and London to allow humanitarian aid, uh, which was uh, provided. But that only began in 96, 97, when I arrived myself, actually, in the middle of 97. But the, after the 2003 war, which, as you say, retroactively was endorsed by the Security Council, which again uh, demonstrates the weakness of this structure that allowed a, an illegal war somehow to be uh, retroactively approved. And, of course, the Secretary General uh, unfortunately agreed with that, which was a great tragedy. But nevertheless, <coughs> the, um, the UN, of course, was in there trying to facilitate the recovery of Iraq developmental, humanitarian, and so on, infrastructural rebuilding, and what have you, um, in, in 2003, when the Americans were in there occupying the country militarily, and this, uh, basically the, the war continued, as you know, and perhaps has now become a civil war. But the, 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 the UN presence was correct and proper, and it was there for humanitarian purposes. Of course, it led, unfortunately, to the uh, killing of UN staff, the blowing up of the office building where I worked, and von Sponnick worked after me, and it was uh, who did that, it's still not quite clear to me. Mr. Bremer, of course, was uh, acting improperly in violation of the Geneva Conventions that un- in an occupying situation, you do not, you cannot change the Constitution, introduce legal changes, which, of course, he sadly did, which has led to some of the mess, total mess, that is Iraq uh, today. Hmm. Um. I think that uh, we need to remind our listeners uh, of just how far Iraq has fallen since uh, the 1980s, like since before the, the, the Gulf War and the sanctions. Uh, you know, how, how you're looking at those, all, all those social indicators, uh, just how much of a mess has Iraq become? Yeah, of course, the, the, the tragedy is that Saddam Hussein, uh, first of all, got them, the country involved in the war with Iran. I know he was encouraged by Europe, encouraged by the United States to do so, and got assistance, as you probably know, from the Reagan administration and George Bush I. But nevertheless, he dragged down the economy, a huge loss of life, great infrastructural damage, certainly along the border with Iran, a crazy situation. And uh, that didn't help much, but um, the... uh, the the continuation of, of Saddam Hussein's rule was clearly unacceptable. Uh, he had now controlled the fourth largest military power, I think, in the world. Uh, he was seen as a danger to American interests, to Israeli interests. And, of course, he then was encouraged, uh, seduced into invading Kuwait. Kuwait had been artificially extracted from uh, ancient Iraq. It had always been an integral part of the greater Mesopotamia area. But the British had cut out Kuwait so they could get their hands on the oil uh, revenue. So it was a catastrophe about to happen, and, it, and of course it has happened, and it's, uh, it's a catastrophe today for the great majority of uh, Iraqi people. Hmm. Now, um, 
you you've uh, also um, re- wrote a, a recent uh, article uh, talking about uh, the uh, culpability of of the World Health Organization in um, its uh, refusal to um, to uh, under its own mandate to share evidence uncovered in Iraq about the use of depleted uranium. Uh, do you do you want to maybe just go through uh, where you feel the uh, the World Health Organization has been uh, complicit in this tragedy in terms of its uh, reporting? Yes, like the United Nations itself, the World Health Organization is an intergovernmental organization. It's controlled by the member states. And uh, they pay the, the bill and they, they control the content of their work to a great extent. And in the case of WHO being brought in to ascertain the consequences of uh, American usage of depleted uranium in 1991 and then perhaps again in 2003 intensely in Baghdad and Fallujah and Najaf and various places like that and Basra further south um, the the UN um, member state role uh, kicked into play and the evidence uncovered by others but also by WHO which I believe clearly showed the terrible consequences of exposure to this nuclear material, DU is a nuclear weapon, um, caused uh, horrific cancers and and, uh, leukemia in children in particular. I mean, I I came up against that in in 1998 and so on. Uh, I think the U.S. put pressure, and maybe other member states who now also use and employ depleted uranium, put pressure on the director general, who's I think a very fine uh, medical uh, doctor from Singapore, not corruptible, I would very much hope, uh, put pressure on her to uh, prevent the, the release of data which indicated clearly that DU indeed was not only an illegal weapon uh, in, in that it's nuclear, but it causes cancers, leukemias, and other horrific uh, con- deformities in childbirth uh, when, when people are exposed hmm. to it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what to, now... We, we've heard, of course, in, recently in the news with, with Syria, there, there's been a, a lot of uh, hemming and hawing and expressions of indignation about the Syria's alleged use of uh, sarin as a, a chemical weapon of mass destruction. Um, is, um, <clears throat> when we talk about depleted uranium, like how, how does that compare with sarin? Is that recognized as being a, you know, a comparable area of concern? Well, sarin gas, of course, is a chemical weapon, and uh, the weapons of mass destruction, so-called, whether they're chemical or biological, have never proven to be so. The consequences are appalling, but the consequences of conventional weapons are vastly worse, as we've seen in Syria, where 100,000 people plus have been killed by conventional weapons, and a handful, I shouldn't say that, maybe 1,500, have lost their lives with the use of chemical weapons, it seems, from what source, who knows, but undoubtedly provided by European powers or possibly the United States. But the, the issue really is that uh, DU is a nuclear weapon, and nuclear weapons are certainly weapons of mass destruction, as we've seen in, in Japan. And it's, it's, that's, that's what's key. That is what is key, in my view. Any, any exposure to nuclear material, whatever number it may happen to have, it has horrific uh, consequences. Uh, chemical weapons, we know, given the, um, the, given the Vietnam situation and the use of Agent Orange, millions and ga- of gallons, manufactured in the U.S. by Monsanto, DuPont, and others, it, of course, is still producing deformed children, very similar to what we're seeing now in, in Fallujah and Baghdad and Basra. Now, we're, this is essentially, uh, I mean, this is uh, impacted on a, a generation of Iraqis. 
uh, with the, the, the birth defects and uh, all of the impacts of depleted uranium. Uh, not to mention the, the, the infrastructure that's uh, been badly damaged. Would it be, would it be accurate to call the, the Iraq War a genocidal war? Well, that's, that's something that's being bandied about. Uh, genocide is something uh, that is very broad. Uh, people think in terms of huge massacres, but it's much wider than that. It includes cultural, economic, social destruction and genocide. It includes taking children from their families, as was done in the United States and in Australia, for example. That's also genocidal, breaking up a culture, breaking up uh, families. So all of that has happened in Iraq by one way or the other. Uh, massive uh, dislocation of, of several million Iraqis within the country, two to three million refugees outside the country, very much like we're seeing in Syria today. All of that actually covers genocide, although we tend to use genocide in extreme massacre situations, of course, like the Holocaust, which is the most extreme example, I guess, ever known of, of, of genocide. Now, you've obviously uh, you've reflected on the situation uh, with regard to the institutions of international order for some time now. Would you say uh, that, uh, that the problems here go to the... the I mean, you mentioned the, the, the control of the United States Nations Security Council. Would you say that the problems, uh, that, that there are alterations within the architecture of, of the UN that are needed, or is this simply a, a question of uh, make effecting change within the, uh, the Security Council members themselves? Uh, well, what could be changed to make this a, a credible, uh, accountable body? Well, if you look at the Charter, it says very clearly, or it certainly implies very clearly, that membership of the United Nations and working together as a global organization of, of governments and states requires a certain compromise. It requires sometimes setting aside national interests uh, for international interests, and that's certainly true in the case of climate control or law of the sea, many rights of children and so on. All of this is you know, basic stuff, that if you join the UN, you have to be willing to set aside sometimes your own interests uh, to work for the bigger good, the greater good of the globe. <clears throat> uh, Clinton and, and uh, Clinton has famously said, of course, what makes the UN, and he means, I think, the Security Council in particular, useful to the U.S. is that the U.S. Uh, uses the United Nations to its own ends to justify its own means and its own desires. And this is not unique to the U.S. This is common, I think, of all of the big member states who control the Security Council. They misuse the United Nations to their own ends, and that, of course, is not the intention of the, of the Charter, in my view. So when it comes to WHO, which is a, a technical organization and should be above these, this sort of politics, I, I fear we see exactly the same happening. And the United States did not want depleted uranium to be condemned and, and, and their country to be held responsible the terrible consequence that DU usage has revealed in, in Iraq. And pressure obviously was put on, it seems, on the World Health Organization to suppress information that clearly should be released. And if released, I think would, would, would outrage parliamentarians and other hopefully sensible people to ban depleted uranium, which already is in train, as we've managed to ban uh, cluster munitions and, uh, and the landmines to a certain extent, anti-personnel mines. DU is on the list now for, for, for banning. But you know, in, in reality, as long as we have conventional weapons and the tragedy of the Security Council, the United States, uh, United Nations member states of that dimension, they are the manufacturers. They sell weapons 
which of course lead to the terrible catastrophe we see in Syria uh, today. So the sale, the manufacture, all that's got to be dealt with. And we've got to, I think, democratize uh, the Security Council. And to do that, in my view, it has to be representative. And right now it represents the North plus China. And it doesn't represent the great sways of the world or the huge population such as, as I mentioned, Latin America, thinking of uh, Brazil and Argentina, Africa, thinking of South Africa, Nigeria, other huge areas. India is excluded. Japan is excluded. Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia, and so on. <clears throat> All of these people are not represented, and they must be represented. And the feeling is that if the South, and that's, that's what I've just mentioned, if the South was properly represented and there was no veto power, we'd see very different decisions coming out of the Security Council, and we would not see the UN being dragged into wars of, in which it has no business and which, in my view, is contrary to the spirit of the United Nations Charter. Well, Dennis Halliday, I think we've come to the end of our time, but I uh, very much appreciate uh, those uh, thoughts, and uh, you're joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Thank you very much for, uh, for this conversation. You're most uh, welcome, uh, Michael. Anytime you uh, need to talk to somebody, <laughs> give me a call. I'll do that. Thanks. Dennis Halliday is a former Assistant Secretary General of the United Nations and a former UN Humanitarian Coordinator for Iraq and a frequent contributor to Global Research. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada. We are also podcast at globalresearch.ca and air Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. If the Iraq War was considered illegal under international law, then what are the obligations on the part of state governments to protect the choice of soldiers who choose not to participate in those wars? Are, in fact, the soldiers obligated to refuse to serve? To address these questions, we are joined by Professor Francis Boyle. Uh, he is a Chicago, Illinois-based professor of law, and uh, he is also involved with the group Lawyers Against the War. So thank you very much for joining us, Professor Boyle. I'd like to be able to uh, uh, pull on your own experiences in terms of protecting uh, soldiers in the United States who have refused to serve. Uh, I know that one of the arguments that's frequently brought forward is that these men and women voluntarily joined the war effort and uh, that they, uh, if they refused to serve, uh, whether, whether or not, whatever you might think of the war, that they, uh, they, they should do their time. What, what do you uh, say to those sorts of arguments? The United States Supreme Court has ruled that uh, soldiers have a right of con constitutional right of conscientious objection at any time. So just because you join an all-volunteer force does not mean you check your conscience at the door or that you lose your constitutional rights uh, to refuse to participate in what you believe to be a uh, criminal war and, uh, and war crimes. And you do have examples, then, of uh, you know, soldiers applying for uh, conscientious uh, objector uh, status uh, even during uh, wartime. I was able to get a, uh, a Marine out of uh, uh, the Marine Corps 
uh, during Gulf War One as a conscientious objector. Uh, so you have a right of conscientious objection recognized by U.S. Supreme Court decisions and uh, even by uh, regulations adopted by uh, all branches of the United States Armed Forces. Uh, the problem is, of course, it's, it's very difficult uh, to do this because the, uh, you know, the Pentagon does not want to uh, set too many precedents there because they might have uh, a fairly large numbers of uh, soldiers uh, uh, going for uh, conscientious objector status when uh, what, what was going on in Iraq or, for example, what is, what is now going on uh, in, in Afghanistan. So uh, uh, th this argument is, is bogus, um, and it is uh, uh, given by people who are completely unaware of the uh, constitutional law here uh, in the United States. And I certainly hope that people in Canada uh, do, not, do not succumb to this disingenuous, bogus uh, argument. Uh, members of armed forces do have a right at all times to... Uh, exercise their consciences and, and conclude that um, they, they cannot, as a matter of good faith and conscience, uh, serve in a particular war or uh, be called upon to uh, commit war crimes. And this came up uh, here uh, in, in two of the leading cases on the uh, Iraq War, uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Camilo Mejia, uh, who was the very first uh, member of U.S. Armed Forces to uh, refuse to participate uh, in Iraq uh, because uh, he, he was there and he saw that when he captured uh, insurgents and turned them over uh, to uh, MPs, they were being tortured, and he concluded that he could no longer, in good faith and conscience, uh, uh, aid and abet torture and war crimes. And then, and uh, after a, a, I regret to say, after uh, we couldn't get him off, uh, after a uh, kangaroo court proceeding, he did get uh, eight months. He was facing two years. And we did get him adopted a uh, prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International, which shows you uh, who is right here. It was uh, 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 Staff Sergeant uh, uh, Mejia. And unfortunately, Staff Sergeant, to show you the perversity here of, of military court-martial uh, proceedings in the United States, uh, Staff Sergeant uh, Mejia spent more time uh, in, in prison for his courageous principled act of uh, refusing to participate in torture and part speaking out about it uh, than many of the torturers uh, who were either let off or got off or got less time than he did. So I think that shows you the sheer perversity of uh, these uh, military court-martial proceedings here in the United States, and precisely why Canada uh, must not and should not uh, force out or turn over uh, any uh, GI resistors who, who, you know, who have come up there to Canada as a matter of principle and conscience. Are there not... Uh, extra penalties put on those resistors who actually speak out, not only refuse to serve, but actually speak out against the war? Well, that is correct, and that's been my uh, experience going back to um, Gulf War I uh, by Bush Sr., where I helped defend uh, the first uh, military resistor there, U.S. Marine Corps Corporal uh, Jeff Patterson, who spoke out 
and then also uh, the highest-ranking officer, Captain Dr. Uh, Yolanda Hewitt-Vaughn, who also uh, spoke out. You are certainly correct. If you do speak out um, and, and you're a member of the U.S. Armed Forces, they do target you. There's no question about it for persecution and will try to nail you to the wall. There's no, no question at all about that. And they, these, I've appeared so far uh, personally in five different uh, uh, court-martial proceedings of uh, GI uh, resistors as a matter of courage, integrity, and principle. And I've appeared pro bono publico on, on their behalf and have written this book to uh, help defend, defend them. And I can just tell you from my own personal experience, these uh, five proceedings I've, I've appeared in were all kangaroo court uh, uh, proceedings. And it was very difficult. They, they were basically stripped, uh, uh, unconstitutionally uh, stripped of uh, all their defenses, uh, subjected to uh, show trials and, and kangaroo courts. I remember um, uh, Staff Sergeant Mejia, it was atrocious. I went down to uh, 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 Fort Stewart, Georgia, for his court-martial, and since he was the first, it was a total media news circus. The Pentagon had all their propaganda outlets there uh, just to broadcast to every uh, GI around the world that if you oppose this war, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, you know, and they took him out in irons, and he was surrounded by big, huge MPs. The whole thing was, was obviously uh, orchestrated on purpose as a, as a style in a show trial. So, uh, again, um, I really think the Canadian government and, and the Canadian people need to seriously uh, uh, reflect. And, by the way, I, I would ask, uh, while you're, you know, you're deporting these very courageous heroic GI resistors, why are you letting uh, Bush Jr. and Cheney uh, into the country uh, uh, when they are the ones who uh, perpetrated this war? As you know, I, I, went, I went with uh, Gail Davidson now uh, three times to try to stop Bush Jr. Uh, from uh, coming into Canada, and they let him in. Uh, and now uh, Cheney is uh, supposed to be coming uh, October 30th, and I'm working with Gail to have the Canadian government deny him entry because he's a war criminal. Uh, he, he admitted uh, uh, openly and publicly to torture, uh, which under the uh, in, in wartime is a war crime. Uh, even the uh, United States Supreme Court Justice uh, Kennedy pointed this out in the uh, uh, Hamdan decision, uh, violations of the uh, U.S. War Crimes Act of 1996. So notice here, uh, under Mr. Harper, the, the hypocrisy and double-faced nature here, he's allowing in uh, Bush and Cheney, who are war criminals and torturers, uh, into Canada, to, to, who, who otherwise should be prosecuted uh, under Canadian law uh, and international law. And then meanwhile, uh, at the same time, Mr. Harper is returning uh, courageous principal GI resistors uh, to show trial who were opposed to this war for uh, show trials uh, and kangaroo court proceedings uh, in the United States. But but, but I really think the, the Canadian people and the Parliament uh, certainly uh, need to uh, wake up here uh, and say no, this this shall not pass. We we want these. Uh, 
practices ended, certainly to bar uh, Cheney from coming to uh, mm -hmm. Canada at the end of this month, and, and put a hold on the return of any uh, GI resistors to, to the United States. I'm not saying, you know, there obviously were, perhaps were some uh, GIs who went up there just for whatever one might say mercenary reasons. I, I don't know. I'm not uh, speaking on their behalf. Obviously, they're... <laughs> There, as I found out, you know, in, in all these wars, there were others who just said, hey, I, I don't want to go uh, tough. Well, fine, uh, that, that's another issue. But I am talking about uh, GI resistors as, as a matter of principle. Certainly they, uh, they should... Uh, uh, not be uh, deported for any reason. Well, uh, Professor Boyle, I, I really appreciate your time and uh, helping to, to shed some uh, clarity on, on this uh, question. Thank you very much for joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Well, thanks again, and I, I would hope all Canadians would, would give their support to Gail Davidson and uh, Lawyers Against War. I, I am a, a U.S. affiliate of them, but they are headquartered there in Canada, and uh, I think um, they do very fine work. Okay. Professor Francis Boyle is a uh, professor of law at the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago. Lawyers Against the War put out a release recently indicating that Vice President Dick Cheney is a credibly accused war criminal with regard to the Iraq War and how Canadian authorities should block his entry into Canada or place him under arrest should he be brought in across the border. To tell us more about the, uh, the case against Dick Cheney and other high U.S. officials is Gail Davidson. She is with the group Lawyers Against the War, and she joins us by phone from Vancouver. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Gail Davidson. You're welcome. Good morning. Okay. First of all, could you uh, maybe just introduce your group, Lawyers Against the War? I mean, maybe it's somewhat self-explanatory, but uh, could you maybe just explain briefly how, how that group got together and what its main uh, objective is? Well, first of all, I'll explain the main objective. The main objective of the group Lawyers Against the War is to um, oppose the illegal use of force, and to promote accountability for uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity around globally. And the uh, Lawyers Against the War was formed in response to the um, illegal bombing and invasion of Afghanistan in 2001. And its members are lawyers and other people uh, opposed to war and opposed to impunity and immunity for perpetrators of war and other war crimes um, in um, about a dozen different countries of the world. Okay. Now, your uh, recently recent release, uh, uh, which is uh, going, refers to the duty to bar Dick Cheney from Canada and to arrest him on entry, and yes. it was forwarded to the Prime Minister, Attorney General. Uh, the uh, ministers Alexander and Baird and to uh, and CC to copied to uh, opposition parties. Um, could you just take us through the, the case as you uh, as you see it in terms? Okay. Of, yeah. You mean take us through 
what the law is. Yes, says yes. That, uh, Dick Cheney. Yeah, has we're talking to be about. From, okay. Yeah, includes both domestic law and international law. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. What I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate on the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Cheney, as a, as as I'm sure your listeners are aware, is um, a notorious um, uh, war crimes suspect. So he's not only um, suspected or known, really, according to many um, investigators of authorizing and directing and failing to prevent torture, but many other war crimes. But I'm going to restrict my comments to the crime of torture because uh, that'll make things easier to explain. So um, under Canadian law, Canada is a member of the United Nations Convention Against Torture, and the United Nations Convention Against Torture creates an absolute prohibition against the use of torture. Torture, um, uh, the use of torture by anyone, against anyone, anywhere, for any reason, is a crime. And so that means that if, um, and people that participate and facilitate, authorize, direct, and fail to uh, properly supervise and prevent torture are all complicit in the crime of torture. So um, if torture is authorized and directed, let's say, by Dick Cheney, as we know that it was, and he himself has, has uh, robustly admitted to having done that, um, then that's a crime. And um, it doesn't matter that Dick Cheney is a friend of, of uh, the, the Bush administration, was a friend of the Chrétien administration or the Harper administration. Or it, those things don't matter. The fact that he was the uh, vice president of the United States doesn't give him any immunity from prosecution. Now, the next question is, well, so... None of that if I could just sort of stop you for a second there. I mean, you mentioned that uh, Dick Cheney had admitted to committing acts of torture. Did he say so in so many words, or did he admit to actions which we realize are torture? No, no. He admitted to um, uh, participating in authorizing and directing the commission of torture. Uh, to be guilty of torture, uh, you don't have to have actually yourself engaged in the use of torture. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not suggesting that Mr. Cheney himself engaged in the use of torture, but he definitely was part of the administration that authorized and directed the use of torture. Now, I'm not sure if you're saying, well, what really is torture? Is that your question? Well, I mean, if, the, if this is a question of, uh, like, things like waterboarding, which yes. uh, that has been acknowledged, but... Uh, I, I don't know that Dick Cheney has actually said, oh, yes, we authorize torture, or that he authorized things like waterboarding, which we understand to be, or which your group and uh, other authorities recognize as torture. Yes, there's no question um, about whether or not waterboarding is torture. Waterboarding is torture. It's been designated and accepted as torture for decades and decades. It's it's uh, listed in the Canadian manual as as torture, it's listed in the American um, Field Army Manual as, as torture. There's, there's, it, it's not open to question whether or not waterboarding is torture. So it's not okay, lawyers enough. against the war who's the authority here. Now, as far as other interrogation techniques um, that uh, are considered torture, um, one of the things that I put in my because people say, oh well, really is. Um, 
uh, enforced stress positions as that torturous uh, sleep deprivation, the use of sleep deprivation over extended period of time. So in, in other words, were the interrogation techniques approved by the Bush administration, are they torture? Well, um, clearly they are. There's a case in the European um, Court of Human Rights just recently that um, decided that the uh, the methods used by the CIA to um, uh, um, in, in forcing, trying to force a um, confession out of a German national that they had um, taken, uh, that they had kidnapped in Macedonia, uh, were in fact torture. So, and the the what the CIA had done to Mr. Al Masri, they had uh, beaten him, shackled him, hooded him, forced, uh, subjected him to forced undressing and sensory deprivation um, over a short period of time. And the the European Court of Human Rights said yes, that was all torture. Okay, Gail Davidson, like you mentioned that you were narrowing your focus to the torture question, yes. but there are other uh, areas uh, the, in which the, uh, the the Bush administration uh, appear to have been in violation of international law. No, they don't appear to have been. They are. There's, n there's no scholar in the world, there's no specialist on international or domestic law who will tell you or anybody else that the invasion of Iraq was legal. Okay. All of the commissions of inquiry who, that have been struck um, to study that issue have all concluded that it was wholly illegal. Okay, so if that's the case, then why isn't that included in the, uh, the, the dossier that you put forward? Um, because the um, people that were directing our uh, request to the Canadian uh, elected representatives in Canada, members of the executive, so the Prime Minister, the Minister of Justice, the Minister of Immigration, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, they are um, not knowledgeable about international law, and so it's much easier to restrict the matter to the issue of torture. And also torture is the thing that Mr. Cheney has admitted to. And torture is a, it's a unique crime because it's always a crime. Like there's, there's it's a non the right to freedom of torture is what's called a non-derogable right, and so it can never be justified. So it's a very simple case. Hmm. Well, there have been other occasions where uh, both the president and vice president, uh, President Bush and Vice President Cheney, have been uh, have crossed the border into Canada, and yes. lawyers against the war had put forward these. Uh, uh, notifica <coughs> notifications that these Correct. people should be barred or they should be arrested upon the entry. Correct. And, and there's been no actions taken on that part. In fact, there was someone who tried to lay a citizen's arrest a few years ago, and, and that, that person ended up getting uh, prosecuted. That's correct. And when Mr. Um, Bush came to British Columbia in October of 2011, the Canadian Centre for International Justice um, laid a criminal information for torture against him and that was immediately you know within um the same day it was blocked by the attorney general of british columbia so you're quite right the government of canada and the government of british columbia um have certainly not only allowed suspected 
torturers and suspected war criminals into Canada, but they've welcomed them, they've paved the way, and they've spent public money on providing um, special protections for those people. That's, that's all very true. But, uh, Gail Davidson, would there not be legal consequences for, for not complying with your own laws? Um, no, there, there aren't uh, any, there, there haven't been as yet any legal consequences for the Attorney General and the police and so on not, not complying with the, with the law. And what the Canadian, um, in Canada we have a, a unit made up of the Department of Justice, the RCMP, and the um, Canadian Security and Intelligence Service called um, the War Crimes and, and Crimes Against Humanity program, and they're charged with the responsibility of investigating and prosecuting um, suspected war criminals who are in Canada. And the position that they took on other occasions when um, members of the Bush and Blair administration were coming to Canada and lawyers against the war and other groups said, no, no, you're obliged to either bar these people as suspects or prosecute them once they get here. And what the um, RCMP in the War Crimes Division replied is they said, no, well, we have a policy. We understand that that's what the Convention Against Torture obliges us to do, but we have a policy of only investigating people who are resident, suspects who are resident in Canada and not suspects who are visiting Canada for brief periods of time. So that was their position. So now, following that, Lawyers Against the War and the Canadian Centre for International Justice and the U.S.-based um, Centre for Constitutional Rights we filed reports with the Committee Against Torture uh, in the United Nations Committee Against Torture, who was reviewing Canada's compliance with the Convention Against Torture. That was in the spring of 2012. And the UN Committee Against Torture reviewed Canada's position and reviewed our submissions, and they decided and um, determined that... Um, Canada was obliged to um, enforce the law against people temporarily in Canada so that Canada could no longer rely on that policy that said, well, we'll ignore um, enforcing the law against people temporarily in Canada and only enforce it against um, non-foreign uh, nationals who are resident in Canada. So mm -hmm. the law is the, the, the interpretation of the law has changed since the last visit. I see. So we're looking at a different scenario here. We are. Okay. So are your, what, what might I ask what your expectations are, given what we know about this government and the, the whole security infrastructure here? Well, I'll tell you what my hope is. My hope is, is that they will um, uh, abide by the law because, of course, we really do need our elected representatives to abide by the law. And that would be very easy to do. They don't need to actually bar Mr. Cheney because the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which was changed when Canada joined the Convention Against Torture, it was changed so that Canada could 
when they didn't want to prosecute, they could keep suspects out of Canada. And in fact, they do keep hundreds and hundreds of people out every year. But with in the case of a person of the prominence of Mr. Cheney, um, it would be more likely uh, and it would make more sense, quite frankly, to send Mr. Cheney a letter saying, um, this is what the law is, which Mr. Cheney, of course, would know. Um, and so we suggest that you not come to Canada, because if you do, we would have to um, bar your entry. And <clears throat> that's, in fact, what the Canadian government did to uh, the British Member of Parliament, George Galway, when they were planning on barring him from entry to Canada. They sent him a letter saying, just as a courtesy, we want to tell you this. And so that's what could be done with Mr. Cheney. So that, I'm hoping that's what happens. And um, my expectation, um, I think that public knowledge has changed a little bit since 2011 as far as what the Convention of Torture is about and why it's of the utmost importance that the prohibition against torture be enforced, particularly uh, the use of torture by states, uh, because that's, um, that's what we want to avoid, states like the United States or Canada or any other state, it being open to the state to use torture as a method of, of uh, uh, terrorizing people and, and violating their rights and so on. Well, uh, the uh, visit by Richard Cheney, former Vice President of the United States, yes. is scheduled to speak at the Toronto Global Forum on uh, October 30th and 31st at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre, correct? Yes, he's actually the keynote speaker at the luncheon on the 31st. Okay. Yes. Well, we'll uh, I guess we'll have to see how that uh, transpires, given the, uh, the, uh, the warnings that you put forward. Well, yes, and, and, and really whether or not the law is going to be enforced yet, because it has to be sooner or later or, or else we're all in trouble, it, it really depends on the reaction of the public. So your listeners, for example, I hope that um, your listeners will contact their members of parliament and say, uh, look, we want um, this to be resolved in accordance with the law, uh, uh, not not just Canada's international law obligations, but their domestic law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Gail Davidson, uh, I want to thank you very much for your time. And, You're uh, very welcome. And then you can bring this to our attention. Uh, Gail Davidson with Lawyers Against the War. She spoke to us from Vancouver. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.